0: Hello and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Today's episode is Burden of Command, in which we'll discuss how command is presented and contemplated through Star Trek. If you're new here, I'm Victoria, and with me is my co-host T. Star Trek Sundays is a podcast through which we and our guest crew examine the philosophical themes presented in Star Trek every Sunday at 10 a.m. PST on Clubhouse. Our goal is not to come to conclusions on the themes we discuss, but to spark contemplation and conversation, which we hope continues after the live recording and into the lives of the listeners of the podcast. At the top of the room, we have pinned our Star Trek Sundays website, StarTrekSundays.com. There you'll find links to our published podcasts, My Captain's Log and Guest Blogs, links to our upcoming watch lists and our Star Trek Sundays trading post. The Star Trek Sundays podcast is available one week after the live show on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and from anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please consider subscribing to our channels. It helps us reach others who might enjoy the show. Today, I'll provide a summary of how the topic came to be, and then T can tell us how he curated the episodes. A few weeks ago, after one of the Star Trek Sunday shows, one of the crew provided some feedback to me in which they questioned why I made the decisions I did during the show. In one instance, I said that the crew would answer questions in one order, but I chose to do something different and more structured immediately after the next speaker had finished speaking. I explained my thought process to the crew about that particular situation and why I made the change and shared a few other issues that came to mind during the live show and the responsibilities T and I have throughout the show. The crew said they hadn't realized all that we needed to juggle. It was then we thought that Star Trek must have covered the burden of those in command and what a great topic it would be. T, I want to compliment you on your choice of episodes to watch this week. I really enjoyed the episodes and they spoke to the burden carried by those in command very well. There were some scenes in both stories that really struck me. Can you tell us how Star Trek has covered the topic of the Burden of Command generally, and then let us know why you chose the episodes we watched this week?
1: You bet, Victoria. Today, the topic was absolutely inspired by you and your example of strong leadership. The idea of having to make hard decisions and the consequences that come with them is a reoccurring motif and a topic that's particularly relevant in today's world. I thought we should focus on three powerful and thought provoking episodes in Star Trek the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine uh, Redemption and Redemption 2, and The Siege of AR 558. These episodes showcase the difficulties faced by Starfleet leaders as they made tough, sometimes powerful, sometimes painful decisions and live with the consequences of their actions. From Captain Picard's struggles to reconcile his loyalty to the Klingon Empire, with his duty to the Federation, to the brutal realities faced by the crew of the USS Defiant on AR-558, these episodes offer a powerful examination of the challenges faced by those in positions of leadership. So I'm interested to hear everyone's thoughts on the burden of command.
0: Thanks, T. Yeah, these were really, really great episodes um, to cover this topic. So thank you for curating those. Let's start with Redemption 1 and 2. Can you provide a summary of the episodes, one story arc, to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what the story was about? And then I'll have a question for you.
1: Absolutely. Redemption and Redemption 2 from The Next Generation Uh, The first one was season four, episode 26, and it first aired on the 17th of June in 1991. And it was the season-ending cliffhanger for the next episode, Redemption 2, in Star Trek The Next Generation season five, episode one, which first aired on the 23rd of September in 1991. So a little later that year. So in these redemption episodes of Star Trek, Picard balances his federation and Klingon duties as a new Klingon chancellor, Gowron, faces a civil war. Worf and his brothers Kern fight to regain their father's honor. As the House of Duras is nearing victory over Worf and the forces of Gowron, Starfleet, led by Picard, works to expose Romulan interference in the Klingon civil war. I chose these episodes because it illustrates the complicated choices that people in command and leadership positions have to make and how the responsibility for those choices are dealt with. And I want to highlight two people in these episodes, Picard and Data, because I think that we saw command examples of Picard and then we saw command examples of Data and it was like watching Picard distilled down to a fine art.
0: Indeed, indeed it was. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Well, this wasn't a story focused on Data the entire episode, as the last couple of weeks have been. The story of his command really hit the nail on the head, at least for me. He was forced to almost explode like a human would when his directions were not followed which seemed to me like a choice because that's what humans understand. Perhaps he calculated that. He made a decision not to respond to Picard immediately or follow Picard's instructions. And yet, while he knew he was doing the right thing by refusing those instructions, the right thing in the long run, he was weighted down or weighed down by the burden of his choice going against his superior officer. And he even turned himself into Picard at the end. And that's where I really felt we saw that burden, right? Not only in the scenes where he was on the ship and in command and was not being, uh, his instructions were not being followed at all. It was clear his crew didn't trust him. But later when he had to explain himself to Picard And I've been in those kind of situations, maybe not military, but there is, there is a weight there. And so in this episode, Data had to make really strong command decisions that his subordinates didn't agree with. And I wonder, have you ever been forced to make a hard command decision and then enforce it against the suggestions of others?
1: Yeah, I have. There were definitely times in when I was working at one of the major seven studios where where managers were suggesting one thing in terms of how technology should be implemented uh, and how teams should be structured, and I had to basically ignore them and take on working in a different way with my team and building something that was off target to what it is that they were asking for knowing that it would deliver on what they were asking for and solve some technical debt along the way so the command structure in this team initially started with um, a guy leading the team and then i got added to the team that this guy was leading so we had four developers and then i was the fifth one coming on and within three days all of the developers who weren't the existing leader said, we want T to lead us. And it took on this, this weird command structure where I had to, you know, there was one thing in, happening in the hierarchy where this person was in charge. And then there was me who was leading the team, effect, you know, in in practice. And the managers kept on going, this is not what we asked for, this is not what we asked for. And we're going, I understand, I understand. But if you just you know, let us do our job. If you just trust us, this is this is going to work out. Now, if, if this didn't work out, this is basically all of our jobs on the line because, you know, we were sort of going against the grain here, but it ended up working out because we gelled as a team and came together in more of a bizarre model in which we could all operate freely and operate as leaders or, or peers peers amongst leaders and get the job done. We delivered on what ended up being a new portal for their for their major media. Again, this is one of the seven big Hollywood studios, and the project rolled into a refit for their entire infrastructure uh, because they were so pleased with the results. So it was one of those really just weird, you know, arcs through through a command structure of taking on the burden and then like you know having to go against the grain and take the heat for it and for several people too not just for myself we we all sort of you know put our jobs on the line and the people sort of came to me and said this is what we want to do and i'm like okay <laughs> you
0: know wow that that's interesting because the term that comes to mind as you're telling the story is managing up which can work, but rarely does it work. It sounds like it did work out really well for all of you involved, but it can feel really weird to the actual manager who was given the command, as well as those who it sounds like you guys were aware that you were managing up and that if this didn't work, that there was going to be some big risks that, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because the existing leader
1: had, had plot the course, right. He had, he had, you know, said, we're going to do it in six months for this, how this is the infrastructure we're going to use. These are the libraries we're going to implement. And this is the path we're going to take. And then what I did is I came in and I made us, I made, you know, a strong suggestion that if we do this, this would work out better for everyone involved. And it, took his roadmap and threw it in the trash. And what was allocated on the books for six months took us two and a half months and we delivered. And that was one of the reasons that the project rolled into the additional infrastructure for the rest of it. But the developers went this direction because they knew management was wrong. And they knew that this direction that the leader was taking them down was just a hard road to hoe. And there were better ways of accomplishing the same thing and doing and delivering something even better than what they had asked for.
0: What a lesson though. Like, this is really interesting to me because a great manager would have recognized that immediately, still been able to keep command and have you as maybe the intermediary, but not be seen as such a leader. That that it almost took his command away. If he had been on board with it and understood what his role was, and what your role was, and and everybody else's roles, Um, and that's the key about managers that they don't always understand that. Sorry, what actually
1: happened is the manager stepped aside and let me do all of the management. He just said, "Okay, fine, I'll, I'll I won't do anything." Right and um, the existing team leader um, became a coder on the team. And it worked, you know? But yeah, I don't recommend it, but it worked.
0: Right, right, oh, very interesting. Well, let's see what others have to say um, about this as well. Jamesy, welcome to the stage. I'd like to put the question to you. First, let me thank you for coming to the um, watch party yesterday. Your uh, contributions were great. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say today. So I'll put that first question to you. In this episode, Data had to make really strong command decisions that his subordinates didn't agree with. Have you ever been forced to make a hard command decision and then enforce it against the suggestions of others?
2: So I was a security director, which involved managing my staff, and I was directly involved in the termination of of one of my staff members and the the decision was very much not mine it was i was told this is what's going to happen this is how it's going to be done and um it it did not sit well with me like it it involved lying to the staff to get him into the corporate office and um his he was being terminated essentially for kind of facilitating an environment that made me look bad, but like also the mistakes that were made were my own. And I felt that I should have been held responsible for that, not somebody else. So it was, it was very sticky. And, um, I, I think that experience had like a, like a lasting impact on the way I continued to manage that job and probably some really positive impacts too about like, Your responsibility to um, like protect your staff from management and uh, really cultivating like that environment where we can all be on the same team.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, The position you were in where you say you had to protect your staff from management. I've been in positions like that before, and it, it's disappointing that we feel we have to protect them. But once they know that they can trust you, um, it's extraordinary how well everything will work out. Um, but again, I'm, I'm left feeling just disappointed that it, it doesn't work further up, that there is some protection needed. You said that that left a positive impact on you. How does that affect you now when, when you're working?
2: Well, it, at this point, I'm kind of uh, avert to taking supervisory positions. I kind of prefer to, to just be a worker. And while I'm like capable of complaining about a situation at work, I'm also pretty quick to remind my peers that as bad as we have it, like that, that goes up to like the managers and the supervisors are all being overworked too. A lot of these mistakes are being made at the corporate level.
0: Right, right. Some, some understanding as well. That's great. Thank you for that. I'll put this question to you, Boatman. Have you ever been forced to make a hard command decision and then continue to enforce it against the suggestion of others?
3: Well, let's see. I mean, I'm a director uh, by trade. And so I'm often, you know, whatever the leader um, in an industry where I could be, you know, supervising hundreds of people in any given time, certainly when we're on set. So I have, I guess I have lots of stories, I guess, but the one that comes to mind um, is kind of a funny and ridiculous one. Would you like a funny and ridiculous one? (laughs) Yes. Okay, I mean, here's my funny and ridiculous one. So I was dragging this movie called Hot Tub Time Machine, which was like 2009 or 10 or whatever. And if you haven't seen the movie, which is fine, of course, there's a scene where these, you know, it's whatever it's about. It's a midlife crisis movie about these guys who go back in time in a hot tub. So when they go back in time in this hot tub, they wake up and not realizing they've gone back in time. They all kind of, you know, are asleep. And um, the opening of the scene is this squirrel, like eating a nut on the hot tub. And then I kind of pull out and reveal with the camera, the four like idiots, like waking up or whatever. And so there was a lot of discussion around this squirrel, right? Like how do you get a squirrel to sit on a hot tub, right? In you know, on a set, like it's impossible. They're wild animals they are not domesticated. They're not trained. And so, There were many, many, many meetings um, about how we would do a combination of animatronic squirrel, and then we would, you know, use visual effects to animate the squirrel in some particular way. And literally, I had, you know, I mean, above everything else, we had meeting after meeting after meeting, because it could be a very expensive and very slow process for just this one joke. And I was like, well, we could just cut the joke and don't have a squirrel to open the scene. But okay, everybody wants to do that. I think it's funny. But it just literally was endless meetings with visual effects, with creature effects, With the set, you know, on-set dressers, or you know, the art department, what green screen we would need behind, and you know, the gaffer and lighting and everything. And one day we were having a general meeting uh, again about the squirrel, and the wrangler was there, and she, because we did have a real squirrel for another like part of the movie and which we're going to actually have a real squirrel and was going to have to do something that wasn't as precise as sitting on the edge of a hot tub and eating a nut or whatever. And she pulls me aside after this very long and and tedious meeting. Again, we were trying to figure out all the elements to make this joke work. And she goes, Hey, you know, I have a brain damaged squirrel. I said, excuse me. She's like, well, See, squirrels obviously are, you know, they're sensitive to sound. They're not trained. Um, you know, they're wild animals. But I have this one who's so adorable and he's kind of brain damaged, which means he, I don't know why he was brain damaged, but he got hurt in some way. And so his hearing, he was bit, pr- practically deaf. This little squirrel. I'm like, okay, where's she going with this? She's like, so I actually think I can get him to sit on that. Edge of that pool, and we can feed him some food. And if everybody's really quiet, I think he'll do exactly what you want him to do because he's not going to hear everybody. And he's, you know, he's just going to be fine. He'll just chill and we maybe have a couple of takes, and then I'll grab him and it'll be fine. And I'm like, okay, okay. And she was, you know, this, she was this, you know, lovely Wrangler from Vancouver. And I was like, okay. So I call the head of the studio and the first AD and all the, you know, department heads and I say, I'm going with the Wrangler, I'm going to bet that this one Wrangler who just came up to me and said she has a brain damaged squirrel is going to be able to get that squirrel to sit there and eat some nuts or whatever it's going to eat and I'll be able to get the shot and everyone thought I was an insane person, everyone, every single department, like from visual effects to creature effects to the head of the studio. Um, we're all like, you are going to ruin this day of shooting because we've done all this planning. We haven't spent the money yet, though, because I'm like, guys, we haven't spent the money. It's going to be a nightmare. I don't know how we're going to do this dumb joke with this combination of creature effects and, and visual effects. Let's just have a real squirrel do it. It'll be amazing. And for weeks, everyone was just telling me how I was going to fail and how it was I was going to ruin the half a day of shooting and how it was such an important thing. And I threw out, I refused to have meetings with ever, anyone about visual effects. I was like, I have no backup. Like i don't want to spend any more time talking about this i believe in this woman and her brain damaged squirrel and finally the studio head calls me and says you know a couple days out of shooting says hey you know this is on you buddy like if you don't get this gag we're not going back i'm not giving you any more days i'm not giving you any more time if you ruin this joke, because you're betting on this brain damaged squirrel, that's on you, pal. And I don't know what the consequences are going to be going to be, you know, we have to finish the film and cut it and stuff. But if like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to give you any more money. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to support you in this at all. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm down. And so, I I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know that it worked. We, you know, I made sure that I actually had the crew practice being quiet, like, because crews are loud. And so we put all the cameras in position. We got all the actors in position. And then I, well, not the actors. I didn't have them come into position until the very last second. But I had the the crew literally practice being quiet for like a half hour. I got everyone in position. And I was like, everyone shut the fuck up. And like, and it was amazing how you know people were loud. It's a sound stage, and so it took like a half hour just to get everyone to be completely fucking quiet, like not a fucking sound on the set or on in the sound stage. So after I got it completely quiet, and everybody used to it being completely quiet, I brought in the actors, and then again told everyone to shut the fuck up, and get got everyone super super quiet. And they brought this squirrel in. I started rolling camera. I told the actors what to do. And we just, we got like five versions of the shot and then she went. And then actually in the outtakes, I don't know if it's on the DVD, The Squirrel, after it did get sick of just sitting there and after I had gotten the shot a couple of times and it was awesome, it started to like walk along the edge of the the spa and it like crawled on top of Rob, Rob Corddry's head and then it kind of like sniffed John Cusack's face. And like we ended up cutting that from the movie because it wasn't part of the movie, but it was hilarious. And so anyway, that is an example in which I just decided, and you know, the stakes are very low, um, it's a joke in a movie, but it was just an example where I had to basically, as the director, make the claim that I was going to, you know, whatever, take hold of this big decision against all odds and against every single department, including the studio, saying that I was wrong in every way and I was gonna ruin this part of this little joke. So that's my, that's my story where I stood up to the forces that raid against me to get the squirrel gag in a movie.
1: I'm reminded of one of my favorite scenes from (laughs) a a movie from my childhood. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm dying. I am absolutely dying. I burst out laughing when you were like, I believe in this woman (laughs) and her brain damaged squirrel. Oh my god that's a great story yeah that, i don't know why I thank her. you so much
3: sure sure i'll shout up but i was just saying i don't know why i believed her but in this moment this woman looked at me i never said a word to her in my life and she just somehow had this truth about her i was just like i think you're right i think you know what you're talking about even though you have no idea how many hours we spent with visual effects discussing how this would work you don't care you have a brain-damaged squirrel, you believe in yourself, and you had the... And she was brave, too, by the way, to come up to a director she's never spoken to and just pitch an idea for how to make something work like that, that was also very, very brave of her. Um, And so I was just, I don't know, I just believed in her and the squirrel, and it worked out.
0: Well, I think that would actually make a very good scene in a movie.
3: Possibly. I mean, it also has to do with believing. I mean, the other counterpart to this and then I'll shut up is whenever I'm directing a movie, I actually try and expand people's repertoire of skill because generally people who come to the set, even though they're in a particular department and are responsible for a particular category of work, whether it's art department or camera or whatever, they tend to be artists that have a broader experience and skill than they're being asked to utilize on the set. And I always find out what people can do because it is amazing how skilled and smart and interesting people are and I am happy to embrace them and give them that power to speak because I'm the director I'm just not one of those paranoid directors who feels like they'll be undermined by someone else's great idea I'm like it'll hey, say directed by me when the movie's released so I'm not worried about my credit or stature and so I tend to engage everyone on the crew from the key, from just date from grips to you know, from the highest to lowest in the hierarchy of departments, um, because I it always makes my movie better. Um, so that's also super important, I think, when you're leading a group of people is to find out exactly um, how you know what else they can do besides what they're
0: being asked to do. Awesome leadership, absolutely awesome leadership. Thank you for that. Um, I'll enjoy listening to this story again when I'm I'm editing. How about you, Rachel? Have you ever been forced to make a hard command decision? and then enforce it against the suggestions of others.
2: Well, as a mom, I guess I'm leading my family. I try to think like there was a situation with a family member that I had to enforce boundaries with that made my mom upset and made other people in my life not understand. And I've had to enforce that boundary, even though people wanna want to tell me otherwise, you know. So I'm kind of a novice when it comes to leadership, honestly.
0: Thank you for that, yeah. Well, I do think that being a parent is um, a a form, definitely the hardest probably, uh, a form of leadership and being in command and making decisions that are made for the long term. And that's what kids don't understand sometimes, that's what employees don't understand sometimes, is the person in command has often more information than anybody else and is weighing all that information and making these decisions. So that's great. Thank you, everybody. This is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. To be notified of future shows, please join the club on Clubhouse and our mailing list at StarTrekSundays.com. Today, we are discussing the burden of command. Before we move on to the siege of AR-558-T, Can you tell us what we have coming up for next week's podcast and watch party? You bet.
1: Upcoming Sunday, February 19th is morning. Uh, We'll be watching The Bonding from TNG, Season 3, Episode 5, first aired 23rd of October, 1989, where Worf takes into his house the child of a slain subordinate, but the child is having trouble accepting his mother's death, especially when she's mysteriously reappearing. I chose this episode because it deals with the impact of the mourning process when one is unable to let go of the one who is lost, as well as letting go of the feeling of guilt and responsibility, followed by Hero Worship from TNG Season 5, Episode 11, which first aired on the 27th of January, 1992. The only survivor of a wrecked ship, a child, copes with the loss of their parents by imitating data, trying to avoid dealing with painful emotions. Meanwhile, the crew is investigating the cause of the wreck, about which the child has not been truthful. I chose this episode because it illustrates the not uncommon phenomenon of shutting down emotionally when dealing with a devastating loss, as well as the tendency of children to feel responsible for things over which they have no control, including the death of loved ones.
0: Thank you, T. That's great. And it'll be nice to get some more data in. We don't have enough data this season. Nope, we really don't. <laughs> so thank you for that. That's great. Well, let's move on to the siege of AR 558. Can you provide a summary of the episode to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what it was about? And then I have a question for you.
1: You bet. The Siege of AR-558 from Deep Space Nine, Season 7, Episode 8, first aired on the 18th of November in 1998. And I just want to say this was a rough episode to watch. Like, hard. In this episode, during supply run to AR-558, Sisko finds the defending Starfleet unit with over two-thirds of the troops defeated, and the remaining soldiers' morale extremely low. When the Defiant comes under attack, Sisko, Bashir, Dax, Nog, and Quark choose to remain on the planet, which is about to come under attack by a much larger contingent of Jem'Hadar soldiers. I chose this episode because of how it depicts the sometimes devastating duties thrust upon those in command and the burden that is left in the wake of performing those duties.
0: Thank you, T. Yeah, a great summary. Um, this was a really heavy episode and, um, i just the entire time every scene my heart was breaking for each of the characters even the real like not even but especially the tough guys who were there who'd been there for so long and you saw one guy you know talking back to his superior and fighting back saying like we were supposed to be out of here after 90 days but we've been here five months and i was just like yeah man that's that's really hard and then we have to go well who are the people in command who are asking this or forcing these people to do it? It was just, it was tough all around. At the end of the episode, the very, very end of the episode, Cisco spoke of the need to remember people, not just as names, but as people. So my question is, do you think the tragedies of war need more visibility in our world so that we can see more clearly the harm we cause when we disagree?
1: Yes. And I think that in journalism, that's been recognized. I think that some of the most highly awarded photographs have been of wars, right? Tiananmen Square and, you know, the tanks and the the monk, you know, lighting himself on fire and the children in in ethiopia or or whatever you know war ravaged country we're talking about the congo or something i I think that these are critical documentary aspects of our world that need better marketing in that they need to be surfaced correctly and respectfully to to really demonstrate just how much harm we actually cause when we do disagree It's not easy to look at these pictures, and that's intentional, but I think that we need to, and remember that these are not just names, but these are people.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up photojournalism. I hadn't thought about that necessarily when we were discussing the questions, and I guess what I'm thinking of, and while you were answering, I was thinking about how these photos end up becoming icons and sometimes they become more of an icon than a representation of a person right and so we do have to be really careful not to just make this really devastating photograph and and have that be looked at as this wow this this photograph of this time but remember the person in it remember their life leading up to that point what they struggled with maybe they had joys shortly before that point of impact right and and who they had around them and and what led them to that moment that was then captured i'm gonna take a moment to tell a story right now because i'm prompted by this in 2010, it's a happy story, by the way, but I'm very touched by it. In 2010, Vancouver hosted the Olympics, and I was quite against it at the time because of, uh, you know, how much it was going to cost the province and and the country. And, uh, and yet, once it was here, I just uh, dug in. I thought, it's here. I'm going to be paying for this the rest of my life. Let's just go. Let's have fun. And and it was lovely, we had great weather. It was wonderful having so many tourists in. I mean, it was February and we had to ship in snow. It was so warm that people from Europe were were not even wearing coats walking down the street. Absolutely wonderful. And so it was 10 days or so of just wonderfulness or two weeks. And on the final day, there was the the final Winter Olympic hockey game. Canada won, unbelievable. The city was just partying. And in a good way, there wasn't damage being done or anything. And my husband and I had had some drinks while we were watching the game. And we're not even into sports ball, but of course we watched it. And then we went out to get something to eat. And I said, I wanted to go to Robson Square, which is where everybody was gathering over the time. This is a a place where we have protests. I've been there for protests. I've been there for peace marches. Um, And this is our gathering place. And it was packed and there were people with flags of all different nations and there were uh, people wearing American flag t-shirts congratulating Canadians and then Canadians congratulating the U.S. because they had got the silver and everybody hugging. It was absolutely amazing. And this couple, I had a, a large camera at the time, my husband and I were into photography. And this couple came up to me and said, will you take our photo? Will you take our picture?" And I said, yeah, and it's noisy. They were screaming, we're we're talking really closely. And I said, yeah, of course I can, but how will I get it to you? And they said, oh, that doesn't matter. We just want this moment captured. And I took their photo and I was stunned. That's what was happening. and, And they just wanted this moment captured. And I'm reminded of that because it just touched me so much that all of this stuff that I tell you led to this moment. And if you saw that picture, it's just a happy couple in a big crowd celebrating, but there was so much more to it, especially for the people in the city. And I guess that was the answer that I had just then was especially for the people. And so behind every photograph, behind every story are the people and, what they've experienced leading up to that moment in time of that story or that that picture so thank you for giving me the space i appreciate that jamesy i want to move to you you were uh holding your cards close to your chest yesterday (laughs) when we asked you what your thoughts were on the siege of ar-558 so I'll put the question to you, but I also am really interested in your thoughts on the episode and what you, what I hope you want to share today. So uh, do you think the tragedies of war need more visibility in our world so that we can more clearly see the harm we cause when we disagree? How might that be that we can do that? And what are your thoughts generally?
2: Well, I... Uh... I'm like kind of fascinated by how not tangential and meta this question is for, for what I'm anticipating sharing today. Um, I, I kind of have to dive into like my own character arc a little bit with this episode because the first time I watched it, I had a visceral, anger based response to it. Um, I've always kind of had the feeling that Star Trek does its best. When it's not like isolating an issue and it sticks with kind of timeless themes. And my first time watching it, I felt like this was very overly politicized with what was going on in the world. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about PTSD in the news and whether that should be covered by the VA and all that kind of stuff. And then kind of evolving. And it, like I, I have to to give props to Star Trek's production team for how well this is done because it really does have like that that wartime epic feel to it. But the the question yesterday was about like triggering post traumatic stress responses and stuff. And like talking about mental health, I think it's really important to recognize that the people being depicted here, or like when we watch Saving Private Ryan or whatever, might trigger us. Like we're not looking at somebody who has ptsd we're looking at somebody who's experiencing a trauma response they are actively involved with the trauma and that is not a disability in fact you can continue to have trauma after or you can continue to have a lasting trauma response after you experience the trauma for quite a while without it qualifying as being a disability because it's like a, a really healthy response to that experience and also, like my own anger, there, there's this, one of the things that I've learned working in mental health is that anger is a secondary emotion. When we're feeling anger, it's because we're feeling something else. And uh, it, it really pushed hard against the things that I valued at the time. And uh, while I did poke fun at T for choosing this episode yesterday, yeah. it's, a, it's a really fantastic example of, uh, of the burden of command and those themes and thank you for giving me space.
0: Th- thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that and thank you for coming to the the watch party. It's always good when people get a chance to share and and I think I quoted you earlier today when I was talking to T in the one with Data. I think you were the one who said in the chat, if Data is confused, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a really good contribution as well. G, welcome to the stage and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. What do you think? Do you think the tragedies of war need more visibility in our world?
4: Yes, absolutely. I think that the humanity, the effects, the, the human effects of war need to be highlighted in our media. Well, I guess it depends on which media. Some of the media has been doing a good job of of really highlighting the human impact of war. I remember during the first Gulf War, how, how much of the media coverage was just, you know, rah, rah, America, and um, th- it was over so quickly, and, you know, so few troops were lost, and there was basically no media coverage that I saw, very little media coverage that I saw of how the, the people on the ground were were affected. I feel like we are, as a society, more aware than perhaps we have been. I think that some of that has to do with the information technology that we now have access to that we didn't back then. But I also do think that we can do better.
0: Thank you. Fatty, what do you think? Do you want to answer either
5: of the questions? Yeah. Sure, sure. We'll talk about the war stuff. I'll go personal. So I grew up um, in the Middle East. I left Lebanon. I lived about a year in the Civil War, spent a few months in underground parking garages. Uh, so I've, see, I've seen some of that bad stuff uh, firsthand. I don't think this solution is actually has anything to do with marketing or um, what you see on TV, etc. And there's a gentleman that I follow, I think that's on to something. His name is Nassim Taleb. I don't. I tend not to have like uh, people that I idolize or anything, but I just take nuggets. And he said something that makes a lot of sense to me, which is th- there's there needs to be symmetry between risk and reward. There has there has to the, those that make the most impactful decisions need to be need to have real risk of harm to them if they're wrong. And he he gave some when you know, when speaking of war, he talks about. Analogies of generals sitting in a room far far away, um, making decisions on troops and things like that and I think the answer actually, I think part of the answer is aligning skin in the game and having there be uh, proper consequences to those that wield the power to send Uh, nations to war. That's the answer. In my personal opinion, that's the answer because uh, it's it's not about a movie, you know, watching whatever, Save it Private Ryan or Schindler's List or whatever, I mean these movies, hundreds of these movies, yet we still have war. We have to move past that idea, I think. I think we need to be a little bit more prescriptive about who gets to make that call. The pain they feel as a result of that call and how we, as a society, truly hold them accountable beyond um, voting, because uh, th- there are some irreversible things that happen in war. And so, I, those are kind of my unstructured thoughts around war and the question.
0: Well, thank you for sharing, Fadi. I didn't know your history, so I really appreciate you um, being so vulnerable and sharing that with us. Um, much appreciated. T, any thoughts on what's been said so far?
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's right on because. You know, when, when when the Federation sets a, a direction, the direction is handed down to the subordinates. When the subordinates don't follow the direction, they get demoted. And demotion, you know, at, at the highest ranks, means loss of your career, the opportunity to command the enterprise. Imagine, imagine Picard doing something that was really disagreeable, right? That, that really went against our core beliefs and just doesn't seem right in any way. And, you know, it is counter to the orders that we have otherwise given. I think that especially in a utopia, the loss of that opportunity is the pain that is there. And we lack that in today's world. We lack big, that. Loss, big time. Right,
0: right, right on. Um so oh fatty did you have something yeah to it's say? it's
5: so simple like it's interesting i, I you know i'm i'm like maybe 0.1 of star trek expertise that maybe one of you have <laughs> when you're sleepy but it, it well you know those things actually hit you like you're on the enterprise and you're like let's go after the uh, romulans or whatever and it's like yeah sure and whoever issues that command is dead if you're wrong kind of thing. And uh, I think the days where the, and I'm not a Napoleon fan per se, but we're like, we're Napoleons leading the troops to battle. I think we need to bring back some of that in some form in society. Uh, Because I think it does have a a potential, it's a better deterrent in modern society maybe than it was in the society of old. Thank you. I have a follow-on share if you want. Yeah, sure, Fatty. It's a gift someone gave it's a gift someone gave me 2 days ago and I'm like I can't wait to sh- give it to someone else. What this person said to me was This was in that other room, Victoria, about ending hate on Clubhouse. Mm. Um and I find this person's share particularly relevant here. Um what they said to me was Uh, The more we tend to talk about something, the less we tend to actually do something about it. And the reason being in this theory is that when you talk about the injustice of something and you do it a lot, you convince yourself you're actually doing something about it. And you get this sense of, you know, full fulfillment, right? And so... You actually want that 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 part inside of you that's like this really sucks and I got to do something about it. And if you use talk as the outlet, you you're less likely to do something about it. Which I don't know if you guys have ever ever heard that before, but you know I, I was like that's actually so true. And if when you apply that to war, you you might conclude that it's actually we actually should, <laughs> There is an argument to say less war movies, less like less media on it um might actually be the more constructive thing because putting out a bunch of war meme movies movies make us feel like we're actually doing something about it when we're actually not so I, I thought that was interesting and um yeah so a
1: little food for thought
0: we are all about the food for thought here what do you think about that T?
1: it's a it's a really interesting point and i i really want to Hundred more for sure.
0: Great, yeah, Jamesy, please. I saw you on mic. Yeah,
2: the, there is a psychological phenomenon. I'm going to validate what Fadi's saying. Uh, just talking about what you want to accomplish actually activates the reward centers for like accomplishing that goal. Like they they run parallel.
0: Ah, so when I think about cleaning my house, I should stop thinking and start doing right then.
2: No, it would be
5: more What's less thinking It's don't talk to
0: people about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we'd be talking about cleaning your house would give you the reward sensation of having cleaned your house.
0: Right, right. Interesting. Well, this has been great, everyone. Does anybody else have any final thoughts before we wrap up the room and and head over to Steve's after party?
2: Yeah, to kind of like make this a solution oriented conversation piece. If you really want to be like hyper focused on achieving a goal, one of the best ways to do it is to publish a roadmap that you can make accessible to somebody. So if somebody does want to get involved, you can kind of just send them to that tiny URL or whatever and then only talk about the things that you've already done or accomplished. Just don't talk about the future Unless it's like this Sun, this Saturday, I'm going to go to this protest or whatever, but uh, that that's going to f- facilitate the most success. And we see this a lot with like video game developers, politicians certainly attempt at it.
0: Right. I would love to talk to you more on that, Jamesy. Um, I'm involved with some extracurricular um, activities, and I that has really sparked my my interest on that roadmap. So perhaps we can connect another time on that. T, any final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: Yeah. The burden of command is such a a strong motif in, in Star Trek. I think that this particular conversation has sparked a lot of interesting thought about how, how people react and how people um, carry that. And I think that, I mean, just the, the shares today were simply amazing, and I really want to thank the crew. You guys brought the, the the really good shares, and I really want to thank you so much for that. Um, I, I'm I'm going to contemplate more uh, some of the things that were said in terms of how people react and how people are, you know, like for example the saying something and how it runs uh, you know saying your goal and how it runs parallel to the same you know sort of pleasure accomplishment centers in your brain um and triggers the same effects so i think that there's there's a lot to unpack there but thank you guys amazing time
0: yeah thank you everyone this has been great once again this is star trek sundays on clubhouse our regular show is sunday at 10 a.m pst to be notified of future shows, please join the club on Clubhouse and our mailing list at Sundays.com. Thank you, everyone, for coming today and discussing with us The Burden of Command. Next week, we'll be discussing Mourning as presented through Star Trek. I hope you all have a great week.
1: Live long and prosper.